Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, I am your host, Ted Odorico. I'm very glad that you could join us this evening. I'll introduce the guys here in just a moment. I've got a great show for you tonight. A um, little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by a couple of fellow Canadians, uh, Joel, uh, Joel Lutt and Mark Wilson, who are the co-founders of Greenwood Golf, uh, which is a fairly young company. They just started up uh, actually, I believe, last year, but they've developed a, a new putter. Uh, that's getting a lot of buzz in the industry. So uh, they're going to come on and talk about that, how their vision began and, and how they got to where they are now and, and all the attention that they've been getting. It's a very interesting uh, story, and I think uh, you guys will enjoy it. But uh, thanks for joining us uh, again this Thursday evening. We're always live from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here uh, in the northwest panhandle area of Florida. And uh, always glad to have you guys join me. If for some reason you can't join us for the uh, show. Uh, at the end of the show, you'll hear some great ways that you can tune in, but you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. That's the main station uh, link, if you will. And you can just scroll down to the on demand section and all of the previously aired shows will be there in its entirety, the recorded version, in other words. So you can always scroll down if you're tuning in a little bit later in the broadcast or missing it all together. Just visit that link at some point, and you can always go. Or if you enjoy the broadcast, and maybe there's some little nuggets uh, that we've spilled out over in the Coach's Corner panel, and you want to get a review of them, you can go back and listen to it there. But I appreciate you guys joining me live. All right, I've got two really great gentlemen who have been on the show many, many times, and we were uh, just having a few laughs off air. Um, going to be a lot of hot air coming on the show tonight, so let me introduce these guys and bring them out. First up, of course, is Tim Kramer. Uh, he's a visionary peak performance mind coach, uh, president and founder of Peak Performance Mind Coaching, a program utilizing uh, innovative and pioneering mind uh, coaching techniques. And he's also a contributing editor with Golf Tips Magazine. He's got a great uh, article every issue, and uh, you wanted to make sure you check out that. If you're trying to get uh, your upstairs working properly out in the golf course, he's the guy you want to talk to. Uh, also joining the show is uh, Clint Wright. He's a 30 year member of the PGA and one of the partners of TGM Golf, who are a big proponent of the R3 approach. We've discussed that a number of times over the years here in the show. Uh, and he's really considered to be among one of the best covering the short game today. And obviously a very favorite guest panelist here on Coach's Corner. Uh, guys, Clint and Tim, welcome to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks. Glad, Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here, Tim. All right, appreciate it. As I said, it's going to get a little windy here tonight, a little warm weather, uh, hot air is going to be blowing up. We might fill up a – I think, Clint, you said we might fill up a balloon or two tonight here fill on the show. Fill up a few so. balloons here, what do you 
<laughs> All right. Don't enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Always enjoy having you guys on the show, and I appreciate it. All right, we're going to talk about um, a little bit about handicaps, sort of breaking through the glass ceiling. Um, you know, we've, we've seen everything from changes in technology and, uh, and despite advancements in teaching and coaching techniques, uh, handicaps remain relatively the same. And I know there's a lot of different areas that we're going to talk about here, but just sort of a general overview. I'm going to give each of you a chance, just a minute or two, to talk about why you think that is. And you may actually spill out into some of the areas that we're going to talk about, but that's okay. Um, Clint, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, and then Tim. Why do you sure. think it is that we're still struggling to get golfers to, to break that handicap barrier? We seem to, they're still struggling to keep, maintain the same handicaps that they have for, for many years. Well, there's no question about that, but I think it's a two-phased you can look at the structure of the system itself, and then you, you need to look at the player. And, and then you look at the industry and, and how we promote certain things to our players. Um, and we very rarely focus on what changes your handicap, and that's, that's scoring. If you watch all the shows and all the advertisements, and the companies are paying a lot of money to advertise, and they're 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 pushing irons and drivers. You don't ever hardly ever see putters and wedges, you know. And when we go as teachers, that's what our students come for us to when they come looking for us to help them with that part of their quote their game. If you want to start out chipping and putting, they look at you like I really don't want to do that. I want to go over here and learn how to do this. Well, mm-hmm. that's really not going to lower your score much. You may think you're hitting it better, but it's not going to lower your score much. And so there, there's a bit of lack of focus on the true parts of their game that will have a long-term effect on their average scoring. Okay? It could have a spike up and down either way, but just the long-term average scoring that you need to have based on the system of handicaps is that you have to have a lot of rounds that once you have an established handicap, in order to really have some major impact on that number. Uh, so you can have the spikes, but what you really have to have in order to, to make the system work better is you have to have long-term repetitive success at a certain level. And that, that's where the people's lack of focus on the true scoring in that aspect of the game then affects the system because it doesn't recognize the peaks and valleys. It only recognizes the long term, okay? And, and I think that has a, a dual, dual reason that the handicaps are not coming down. The system requires a lot of scores, much better than what you've been doing, in order for it to have a major effect, and then the players are, are not really focused on what's going to make that happen. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with you. I think you're exactly right. Um, definitely a big factor um, Tim, what do you think about that? What do you think, uh, any comments with respect to what uh, Clint has just mentioned and, and anything that you want to add as well? I mean, you know, we, we've been talking about uh, a lot of different things on the program and, you know, we've touched on handicaps before, but there's a lot of golfers out there that really struggle uh, with improvement. Uh, you know, they might hit a little bit better, they might do some things a little bit better, but their score is just not reflecting it and definitely their handicap. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I I definitely love the uh, the context of this conversation. I, I see it too, and and um, the, a couple of things that I think that are going on. One is that I think that the industry as a whole 
and, and I do agree with Clint very much that we um, uh, do not emphasize short game and scoring around the greens enough. And, and I would agree, too, that most of the students who come to me, uh, whether it be for mind coaching or as a swing instructor, they, they just want to pull out the driver and figure out how to uh, hit it further and longer and straighter. And, and I get that. There's a real, you know, it, it's, it's fun uh, to hit it long and straight and whatever. But it seems to me that in general, we've really begun to focus, and, and I would say maybe the advent of video technology. And by the way, I love video, so I'm not knocking video, but we've become so swing-oriented at the expense of learning to score. And that, to me, is a major obstacle to why score doesn't come down. Now, now that certainly gets to another thing, which I would say is comfort zone. And I don't think that most, uh, most instruction, um, we don't really probably address comfort zone enough. And I think that most players just get outside their comfort zone very quickly out there and, and and it might be the first time that they're breaking 80 or 75 or par it doesn't really matter what it is but the nerves start kicking in all of a sudden now because they're really um, their minds aren't in the right place that becomes a major obstacle also to the scoring uh, the ability to score yeah great points as well tim and you know there, there's obviously a lot of different factors that play in and we're going to touch on a few of them here um, and, and you sort of alluded a little bit, Tim, so, uh, Clint, I'm going to start with you and then Tim, I'm going to let you chime in as well. But, uh, you know, technology is one, you know, what has, I mean, again, I'm in the same camp as Tim. I think video particularly is, is a great thing. I think it gives uh, players an mm-hmm. opportunity to, to really see what's going on there. And it's obviously a great tool for the coaches. And there's certainly a lot of other technology that, you know, we could argue one way or the other that it's positive and others that just really don't maybe necessarily hit the mark all the time. Uh, but does technology play a hand in maybe, I don't want to say a problem, but, but stifling a little bit the handicap? Um, what do you think? Well, I, I'm not real sure as far as <clears throat> the the technology in, involves stifling it. I, I think it, it it very well could be that the technology is not being used completely and to the fullest advantage of the technology. I mean, how many times you go out and watch somebody, you know, chipping and putting, and you videotape their chipping and putting? You don't. Right. You don't see that very often. We want to see the full swing and and what we have and all the videos that you see less on YouTube or whatever that's trying to demonstrate things, you never see them demonstrating chipping, particularly putting some, but you never see the chipping aspect of it being really a core part of it. So I, I think the technology is wonderful. We've got all kind of ways of developing stats and club head speed and angle of attack, but there there's some out there that can be adapted for it, but very few that really work well on trying to teach a person how to chip the ball better or put the ball better. And technology will never help a person learn how to play. Mm-hmm. It may help them learn how to hit it. But club selection, shot selection, reading the greens, break, you know how the ball's breaking and how hard to hit it, reading the grain on the greens, technology is not going to do that for us. So we can't try to rely on it totally. We still have to have some intuition. We still have to have imagination. Uh, and those are the things I think that most 
amateur players um, are, are lacking in, in trying to develop those skills. It's not something you can't learn, but you have to have somebody to, to lead you, a mentor, a teacher, somebody's willing to and be willing to want to learn that. The biggest problem I see is that people really don't see the value in that so much, so they're not willing to put the time in to learn it. They'd rather, you know, hit balls on the range, and they see value in that. But if you want to change your handicap, then the value has to be in how you're going to change that, and that's to become a better player, not necessarily a better hitter. Uh, well said. And, Tim, just to, to wrap up a little bit on technology, um, you know, I, I agree with what a lot of uh, Clinton has just said, and, and I think there are a lot of great aspects of technology that can be used to uh, improve our shot making and can be uh, give us some visual cues. But I think also, too, maybe um, – you know, technology has been overused in other ways. Um, you know, the stats are great. It's nice to know how many, you know, greens we're hitting in regulation and so on and so forth. Um, but maybe a lot of the teaching, and we're going to get into that in a moment, but more of the teaching and coaching has relied very, especially with some of the younger coaches and that out there, rely very heavy on technology. And I'm wondering if that sometimes can be a bad thing um, as opposed to, uh, what it's intended for. What do you think here about technology and how it's affecting management? Yeah, I, I, I love the technology and I love all the stuff, but I guess I have to agree with what Clint said, and it, it's really how we use it that to me seems mm-hmm. to be the issue. Um, I don't think we use it to our benefit as much as we could. Um, the other thing that I would say is that to me, the, the, um, what I see lacking uh, in general, is we have taken, and this would tie into uh, certainly into brain research and maybe what I do in terms of the mind game, but uh, um, is that we tend to think of the game in a very linear, repetitive way when what we need to do, I believe, in terms of scoring is we need a lot of different approaches. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to build and develop a mind based on consistency. Um, there's a couple of flaws in that. One, there's some wonderful research that came out of Stanford University several years ago that says the human brain is not wired for consistency. It doesn't look to do things the same way every time. And yet, it seems like that's all we try to teach is that just repeat this, repeat this, repeat this. And the problem with that is, is I think it takes us right out of that mode of learning to score. And so two words that, that Clint used that I love are, are imagination and intuition. And I think we've gotten so far away from that. Uh, within, and we could say whether it's technology or not, uh, it doesn't really matter. It certainly appeals to, um, uh, it appeals to people that, that think in a very linear, repetitive way. But uh, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to learn to score in this game, you have to just, it gets back to what we talk about, you have to learn to play this game one shot at a time. And and that is not always, in fact, I would dare say probably seldom, uh, a one-size-fits-all or such a linear approach. Yeah, uh, again, well said. And, you know, this brings us to, um, a little bit, you know, Clint, you sort of alluded to this, uh, you know, the teaching and or coaching, and I'll even throw in uh, sort of the, uh, the mental side of the game a little bit as well. But that aspect of the game, you know, are, are we doing everything that we can? We, we seem to be doing a lot, 
Um, but are we doing a lot of the right things, or have we gotten away from a lot of the, the things that to typically in the past have worked very well um, in pursuit of you know, a, a perfection, if you will? You know, before it was, again, you know, as you discussed, it, it's, it's more of learning how to score and, and, and learning how to actually play the game. And are we now trying to, or has maybe over the last decade or so, golf tried to pursue that perfect swing uh, in pursuit of, and maybe given taken away from other areas that that is really more important? What do you think here? Teaching and coaching have we done all that we can do, or are we going in a in a path, or have we gone in a path that's maybe counterintuitive? You asking me, Ted? Yes, I am. Sorry, Clint. Yes, yeah, sorry. Okay, no problem. Well, you know, that, that's kind of a tough, tough question. I mean, because technology and the, and the equipment and the ball and the courses are always changing, and the game is still the game. The ball's still around. The club face is still flat, you know, and the physics of the game hadn't changed from the time we started playing it. So it, it's really difficult to understand is if we're not teaching people right. It, it almost is that we're trapped into trying to give the student what they think they want and mm-hmm. you know i you know you almost have to ask your student a question now do you want to learn to hit it better play better score better or all of the above well all of them are going to say all of the above i want to hit it better i want to score right. better i want to play better all right so well then how are we going to accomplish that um and as an instructor you almost say okay now look you come to me to help you improve your game so you need to let me drive the train here. If you're telling me you want to hit it better, let's evaluate that. Let's see how you're striking the ball now. You may be hitting the ball better than you think. We need to evaluate that. Then we're going to evaluate mm-hmm. how you play or in part of that scoring aspect. So then once you make that evaluation to the student, it says, okay, here's what I see. Now, are you willing to go the direction I want us to go in to accomplish your goal? Are you still just stuck in trying to hit it 300 yards? Um, and those are honest. Well, those are honest questions. I think you have to ask, answer, ask your students. And you know, if you want to learn how to 300 yards, then we're just going to work on that. But I don't want to hear what your score was. I want to know how many times you hit it 300 yards today because that's your objective. But mm-hmm. if you're wanting to lower your handicap, and we want to circle back to the original question: How are you going to lower your handicap? then we need to focus on that part. As long as the ball striking is reasonable, then we need to go to an area that we can try to get as much out of that ball striking as possible. And to be honest with you, not a lot of students are willing to do that because they, they see so much on television with the players. You know, they, the other day I was watching the, the event, and the young kid hit a ball. Oh, he hit it 360 yards. Can you imagine that? That's all, all right. they talk about. That's all you hear him talk about. You don't hear him talk about how he got it up and down four holes back and made a really nice save for a par. You don't talk about that. It's just how far he's hitting it, you know, and, and these things. And that's what we see with students that come to us. I want to hit it further. Can't play this game unless you hit 300 yards, you know. You know, I hadn't hit a ball <laughs> 300 yards in my whole damn life, and I still think we play pretty good, <laughs> you know. But we get that we get that attitude from our students. You know, you got to hit it further. Got to hit a nine iron, one hundred and sixty yards, or apparently you can't play the game anymore. 
but that's that's what the student we, you come to, and particularly the the under thirty. I want to hit, mm-hmm. you know, they want to bang it, you know. So, so you have to ask those honest questions to the student to say, okay, how what do we want to do here? What's your goals? What you want to accomplish? And then if you're coming to me as an instructor, we as instructors have to take charge. We have to say, look, you're spending your time, your money coming to me for advice on how to improve your game. You need to listen to, to the path that we want to go, but we do the evaluations ahead of that to make sure you've got the information to show them here's where you need to go. And that's where the technology comes in. I think you can get really good data that people understand. says, okay, here's how you're hitting it. Here's the scores. Here's the club head speed. And, and then you go to those areas that will help them improve their scores. Yeah. I, I, again, I agree 100%. I think, Tim, also, you know, as, as Clint has, has mentioned several times, it's really the messaging. I think a lot of times with, with teaching and coaching, um, you know, again, we have to ask those questions. I mean, we all have students that come, as Clint suggests, you know, wanting to, to you know, belt it out there 300-plus yards. And, you know, that's a lot of fun. Who wouldn't want to do that? Um, but how is that going to help their bottom line? In other words, I mean, great, you hit it 300 yards, but if it's not straight and it's, you know, uh, you know 260 straight and then the last 40 yards – are, uh, you know, left or right, and now you're in trouble or out of bounds or what have you. So are we getting the messaging wrong? And I'm not talking, I think, and again, I'm not trying to pick on an age bracket here, but I think with for seasoned coaches or professionals, I think they understand the messaging. But I think some of the younger guns get, have gotten wrapped up in, you know, as we talked about technology and things, and they're more wrapped up in, you know, hitting it out there 100 you know, and 50 yards uh, further than everybody else. What is your thought here with teaching? Is the messaging wrong? Are we focusing on the wrong things? And what should we be focusing on uh, if we want to help our students? Well, I I really like how Clint has addressed this. And in terms of I I don't think uh, as coaches, sometimes we do a good enough job of asking the questions of how they want to improve because, you know, if somebody comes to me, they just want to hit further, fine, let's just, you know, work on your swing. Although if you ask them if they want to play better and score better, what, what are they going to say? They're not exactly going to say, no, I, I just want to hit further. Um, so, of course, they want to score better, but, but the problem, the trap seems to be that they're not really – uh, diligent enough in terms of what it really takes to become uh, better at scoring rather than hitting. So, so definitely that's a trap. One of the things that I've done for, for many years with my students and, and more as a mind coach, but we, I, I have them keep uh, what I like to call second scorecard. And the scorecard, the second one that they have to do is they have to keep track of their shots and how many times they actually legitimately went through a highly focused pre-shot routine and then how many times they went through a highly focused post-shot routine. Now, now it doesn't really take that long to do, but what we find, and, and, and it's always amusing to me when I talk to my younger students, is that, um, and not so much the, the mini to pros or the pros, but but more, you know, well, I, well, I hit, you know, I hit uh, nine greens today or I hit, uh, you know, I hit eight fairways or I only, I only did, you know, I only did this or that or I did this or that. Or, 
you know, might be excited or whatever, but invariably it's always, um, I find it a little amusing. They always come back to the, to the statistics. And the statistic that I'm interested in the most is how many shots today or whatever round we're talking about were you really focused and in the present moment giving it your all. And we, to me, have just gotten so far away from being in that one shot at a time mode. And this is what the shot requires right now. We, we, we've kind of gotten into too much, perhaps, in the swing. I would be the last to blame technology. I think technology is wonderful, but technology, as Clint said, and I couldn't agree more, does not make the player. I mean, the player is who makes the player. And um, certainly it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's very different to me developing a player from a swinger of a golf club and a hitter of a golf ball. And there's some knowledge that's required. There's some technique that's required. But above all, the imagination and, and the ability to really um, be in the present moment, not to be dragging up the past and not to be too far out in the future. And I don't think as coaches, um, I don't hear a lot of the students who come to me talking about coaches who use that particular language. It's just they just teach the swing, and, and it's almost like, well, you know, uh, you'll figure it out, but, but uh, I'm not sure that it's quite that simple. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a lot of variables, and I, and I think it's, you know, we, we have to obviously teach the golf swing. We have to um, get them hitting the ball better, um, but we can't just stop there. I think it's important that we educate them on how to play the game. Um, even some of our more seasoned golfers, I think they need to understand how to play the game, how to string those shots together, and how to, you know, not fall into those traps. I mean, you know, I talked to a young lady here this past Tuesday on the, um, from the Symmetra Tour, just won her uh, event the other week, and, uh, you know, we, we talked about something very similar, and that is, you know, she plays in obviously a lot of pro-ams, and one of the big arguments uh, or problems that she sees is a lot of the amateurs, I mean, literally are stepping out of their shoes trying to hit it off the tee. Um, the other issue is is poor is poor club selection. Uh, you know they 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 have 190 yards, uh, you know to a green, and you know they're pulling out a seven iron or even a six iron, and they they don't know how far they hit each of those clubs. So they're guessing or they see what the pro is playing and they think, okay, well maybe if I just adjust mine and play one club different, I should be okay because I don't hit it maybe as far as they do. But they're not really understanding that. And this comes into Clint, you know, talking about equipment, talking about the golf ball. I think there's a couple of areas here. I'll give you one example. I see a lot of people, and I'm not knocking any manufacturers or anything like that, but, you know, I see a lot of guys out there, you know, playing what I would consider the top golf ball or one of the top golf balls in, in the market. And um, I'm not going to name names, as I said. I think we all know who we're talking sure. about. And, you know, they're spending $50, $60 a dozen, and they can't hit worth beans. And, you know, I'll say, why are you wasting so much money? You're, you can't play the game very well as it is, and you're losing them left and right. Why not get out there and just play, you know, a, a, a much cheaper ball um, until you learn how to play and score a little bit better. And, and I know it's not doing the manufacturers any good. And it's the same thing with equipment. Uh, you know, I see people coming out with, you know, two, $3,000, uh, you know, worth of equipment, 
that can't play. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts here? What, what do we need to do? I mean, how do, how do we combat, you know, these, and again, the messages that are coming out there from the industry, you know, you've got to have this, and this is going to help you play and that. Yeah, it might help them hit the ball farther, but it's not really helping them play. What do we need to do to combat that as coaches? Well, in order to do something about that, you have to be able to change a person's ego. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with step. You know, there's nothing wrong with driving a fancy car. Uh, although you're, you know, you got a car that'll go 200 miles an hour, but you only can drive at 60. Okay, <laughs> we know how that works. And people are going right. to want to have the the best equipment out there. I mean, that's just human nature. But the equipment side is one thing, as far as you know. Uh, an, an expensive driver is one thing, but a, a, an expensive driver that suits you is another thing. You know, don't mm-hmm. overbuy, you know, let's say a, the shaft pattern particularly. You, you see people mm-hmm. that, that play the shaft that's way too stiff for what they do. You know, get the get the more of a regular flex. Get something that matches. That's why I think that even though the guys that are shooting 100 will benefit from having a proper fitting, of the clubs that they intend to buy, not just a right. you know an old fitting, but a proper fitting to somebody and say, "Here's what you need." And um, now the golf ball, I agree with you 100. percent The best buy in the golf shop is the used ball in the jar, you know, in the dollar jar ball. You know, um, <laughs> it, well, really, it, it, you're actually crazy. Why, no, why I spend agree. 50 no, bucks? No, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree. You know, yeah, yeah, you spend yeah. 50 bucks for a dozen balls that you're not going to have half of them in your bag when you get done today. Okay. Right. <laughs> just, the other, the other six of them are going to be gone. And this is the way it is. And, um, you know, so I've always encouraged every golf shop that, that we're associated with generally has the, you know, the pearls or the retees or, you know, a guy that's out getting balls out of the pond that, that, that cleans them up and sells them as a group. So if you want to get that expensive type of ball, Wait until this guy's got a dozen of them that somebody else paid fifty dollars for and left them on the golf course and buy them in. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with them. So I agree with you 100 percent on the golf ball thing, but the equipment side, I think you can, in today's world, you can buy a little bit better uh, type performance. You can't buy a better game, but you can buy a little better performance no matter who you are. Uh, but as far as an entry level type situation. The commercial grade or a good use set of clubs is entry level, but once you beyond that, I think you can get a little better performance out of equipment. Um, but again, the golf ball. But you know, they they see it on television, so you know you got to have that. And more power to them if they want to spend that money. It's good for our industry, I guess. But on the other hand, they can they can manage their their costs a little better. Like I said, particularly in the golf ball area, for sure. Yeah, and, and Tim, you know, I think as far as equipment's concerned, I think uh, Clint nailed it on the on the head. There is, you know, it really comes down to being fitted properly. And you can buy whatever you want. I don't care what driver, what manufacturer you buy. If you're not fitted properly, um, you're not going to utilize the equipment to its fullest potential, which obviously is going to affect your handicap. Um, what are your thoughts here on equipment and ball? I think you probably agree with what Clint said, and I don't know if oh, you have yeah, anything else you yeah. want to. No, definitely, but but you know, but it, and I do actually because here's where I guess that I I kick back into a little bit as a mind coach in terms of uh, 
I call it the new putter syndrome, but it could apply actually to a set of irons or a driver or anything like that. And, and um, so, so say we get fit or, or whatever, and we we're hitting this new driver and you know, this new putter or whatever, and just hitting it fabulously for, I, I, I often jokingly say probably at most about a couple weeks. And, and then we go back to every pattern that we had running inside the brain to me that, that we go back to all of our limiting beliefs and we find out very quickly that, um, and again, I'm not knocking um, at all. I, I, I believe that every player who plays this game at a medium to higher level definitely needs to be fit. So, so no arguments there. But I would say that if we, if we get so suckered into believing that it's the new driver or the new putter or the new this or that that's going to save us in our games, when we're, we're, we're really still using the same old brain and the same old mind that's tapped into the same old disbelief, and we find in a couple of weeks that there's just not a club that's going to save us. And so we just, you know, then, then if we're, we're smart, we start, you know, maybe taking a different approach. And if we're not so smart, we go out and buy a new driver. And, again, the hope that that gives us is awesome. But that lasts for a couple of weeks, and then we're right back to the same situation again. So this is where I guess I have to throw in the total approach to improvement, which is we also need an, a highly optimized mind. And, and this is where I think instruction, and probably because most coaching and coaches are not trained in teach, really teaching the mind game. I, I still see most coaching surrounding well, this is how I played, or this is what I did, or this is what I think you need to do too, where, where mind coaching has gotten so sophisticated that, that to think that, um, uh, you know, that we're firing on an old mind and, and new equipment or whatever is going to save us, I just don't see it. You know, and the other thing too that w- which, uh, you know, I want to throw in there real quick about that and then we'll move on, but um, is the type of equipment as well, um, forgetting whether it's the driver or what have you, but, you know, particularly for the irons, you know, there's a lot of forgiving irons, especially for our, our newer golfers. Um, I don't know how many times I've seen, you know, beginning golfers that maybe have gotten even a hand-me-down set, uh, you know, from a, a better player who used, uh, you know, traditional blade uh, heads and, and, you know, cannot make good solid contact, which is just adding fuel to the fire. So there's a lot of different types. Uh, there's a more forgiving clubs out there now. So you really have to be careful of what you select. I know, you know, a lot of times you see your favorite player out there. He's playing something, or and you're thinking, well, that's the club for me. It looks good. And yeah, you do have to uh, appreciate the look of the club. You know, you're the one that's going to be looking at it all the time. But at the same time, you know, if you're playing a higher caliber club like a blade or uh, traditionally or something of that nature. Uh, it's not going to serve you well if you're a 25-plus handicap. It's just not. So that's something that's a conversation that you need to have with your teaching pro uh, and and help them, uh, you know, let them help you sort of look into that and what are some options for you. Um, I think you'll find something that will suit uh, exactly what you want. Clint, we're going to talk about uh, – I think you mentioned this very early on uh, about the golf course, but golf course design, too, also affects – handicaps we, we've said this for years um you know we love the golf courses they look great uh, but gosh there's a lot out there that are really really tough um very difficult designs um you know 
what are your thoughts here on this? This is something that we've, you know, I think in our pursuit of, again, you know, the perfect swing out there, we've tried to do that. Now we're trying to, you know, for a long time, we've tried to get that perfect golf course. Each architect wants to outdo the other one. And, you know, mm-hmm. my, they look great. But when it comes to actually the average golfer out there, you know, maybe they're doing a little bit of a disservice in some ways as well. Maybe we're, we've made it so difficult to navigate around those courses with all of the traps and whatnot that folks just, um, they're just not going to improve regardless of, of what we teach them. What do you think here? Oh, yeah, I, I can understand some of the design. But, I, you know, when we first started playing golf, there was a tee box on each hole. It was divided basically up into three sections. The back tees, you know, the blue tees, the white tees, and the ladies' tees, right? They weren't called red tees. That was where the ladies played from. Well, actually, I think the golf courses that are designed today are actually far better because there's multiple tee settings. Most of them are on different angles. And we now want to call them the forward tees, the middle tees, and the back tees. So I, I think that, and we do this now. I mean, we, we'll play in a group that we'll have people playing from three separate tee boxes in the same foursome. Yep. Okay? Because everybody is playing the course that they can play equal to the person playing in the back. Okay, so... You know, it, it's really quite quite good that we have different type players, and we all kind of end up in the same place on the on the fairway. Um, so it's really the way the golf courses are designed now. I think it is up to the player to say, okay, look, I can't play from eight thousand yards. I really can't play from sixty five hundred. Maybe I need to be playing a golf course up here that's fifty five hundred yards. And that happens mm-hmm. to be the forward tees, okay? And so you have to decide where you can have the most fun playing. You know, we all do that. I don't have any fun playing from 8,000 yards. I'm not going to play from back there. There's no fun to be had. And so you need to be able to say, look, I'm just going to play where I can have the most fun. If y'all want to play up here with me, great. But here's where I'm going to play from because this course, not the golf course itself, but this particular version of this golf course is better suited for me to play that middle tee. That's the course I want to play. See, a lot of the new design golf courses, in my opinion, have one layout with many versions. Mm -hmm. So you have to, to decide what version of that layout works best for your game at the time. And, and then you can decide that I'm having fun here. Well, now it's maybe getting a little too short, or I'm playing well from here. Let's try from the next version. Um, you know, several courses that I've played here recently have a combination tee, where in some holes you play mm-hmm. the blue, some places you play the white, and they're rated that way. I do course ratings in South Carolina uh, area here. We go out and do our course ratings for the USGA and stuff, and we rate them from those different different tee boxes. And those combo packages are beginning to show up in some of the ratings, which I think is wonderful. Um, but I, I think the players need to understand that there's one layout here with many different versions in that layout that you need to choose the one that's going to give you the chance to have the most fun for the day. And, and I think everybody will appreciate that that's out there playing that day. And we've seen it more and more now 
than we may have done 25 years ago because of the, the architectures. The architects are beginning to add those versions. I think they understand it. And if the players began to recognize that, I think we would have have far better uh, enjoyable uh, rounds of golf being played. Great points, uh, Clint. Um, well said. Um, you know, Tim, I think sometimes, too, it goes back to the mindset. You know, we talked a moment ago with equipment and that. People think that they need to buy this or they need to do that uh, in their selection. And I think some people have been under uh, sort of the guise when it even comes to playing golf courses. They figure, you know, if it's uh, 7,800 yards and, by gosh, they just spent $65 to get out there, um, that they need to play every inch of that course. And sure. unfortunately, they end up playing every inch of that course because they're left, they're right, they're back, and this way and that way. Um, right. You know. So, yeah. what do you think? Uh, what do you want to add to uh, to this uh, conversation? Uh, in addition to what Clint's just pointed out, I, I I happen to believe that the newer courses I I have played um, um, well, obviously played a lot in my my career, but. I think the courses just keep getting better and better and more visually appealing and, and actually spectacular. Um, there's some there's some just incredible golf courses out there now that that uh, that yeah I think that I, I again it's gonna sound like a puppeteer but I agree with Clint once again. I think if fun was the goal rather than mm-hmm. score and we we have this mindset i think that i just have to make this as difficult as i can in order to challenge myself rather than i'm going to go out today and just have as much fun as i can have and i love the idea of, of just it, it would be great to you know to have everybody move up and you almost can't move back until you prove that you can handle up uh, i rarely mm-hmm. see most beginning players or newer players who are newer to the game, even I don't care what set of tees you could put them on the front set of tees, and they still would not scratch or, or sniff par. Um, it's just still very challenging for them. So, I think if we made fun the goal, and, and again, it's just it's not popular. We 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 somehow, you know, I think there's the mindset of uh, of uh, maybe you know maybe I paid for this and. And I gotta you know, mm-hmm. get what I can get out of it, but there's something about it that that if I'm not challenging myself and beating up on myself and making it as difficult as as I can, then somehow I haven't proven my my worthiness or my, my whatever it may be. As opposed to if I just went out and had a blast today, uh, from whatever set of tees that may be, that would, that to me would be the ultimate goal. And actually, when you think about it. That would be the best way to improve because because if we are always out there having a good time playing from a legitimate set of tees that matched our abilities, to me the feedback that we would receive from that would allow us to improve and to score better uh, and then to have a little more challenge. We don't have to make this game as, as hard as we've made it out to be. No, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, th- I just want to add, excuse me, one thing. You know, I remember when I first started to play, my father, as I've mentioned a number of times on the show, uh, was who got me started in the game. And I remember uh, distinctly he's, him saying to me, um, you know, we're going to play this course over here. It was a, a, a par three or, or often sometimes referred to also as an executive course, uh, which was much shorter, much more forgiving. Uh, and that's what I played uh, for quite some time before I went out to, you know, where he was a member. And the reason he did that is 
you know, he worked on certain things. He helped me understand the game. And he said, you know, to be honest, he said, there's no point in going to the members club here because you, you don't understand enough about the game and it's only going to frustrate you. So I think sometimes, especially for beginners, when you're first starting out, and I know there's not as many of them around anymore and you've got to hunt for them a little bit more. And, and that goes to the one thing I've, I've said before on the show. I would love to see more and more of those type of courses, uh, an executive type or, uh, or a par three course. I know some courses have them available, um, but they're not as, as common uh, in some areas anyways as what they were at one time. I'd like to see more of them pop up again. Um, I think we've got plenty of, of you know, our resort and our members' uh, courses around and, and, and uh, public courses, but I'd like to see some par three or executive-style courses around, especially for some of our newer golfers coming out. And just let them learn the game. Let them understand the game and not get so overwhelmed. Because, I mean, you know, you get them playing some of these courses that are 7,500 yards, and Tim, as you point out, you can move them right up as far as they can go, and they're still, you know, pars off in the far distance. So, you know, again, there's that may be a way of, of combating it a little bit with some of the other things we've talked about. I don't know, but I think that could be a start. It worked very well for me. Um, that may be something that we need to look into as an industry as well. Uh, Clint, I'm going to come back to you. We're going to talk about player participation. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, the players have to bring something to the table. I mean, we talked about coaching. What can we do? We talked about technology and all the other things, but the truth of the matter is we can stand up there in our soapbox and point all of these things out that we've discussed tonight to help them uh, improve uh, their handicap. But if they're not getting their hands dirty along the way and doing something themselves to, to engage and, and do what they need to do, or in other words, participate themselves, it's all for naught. What are your thoughts? Oh, there's there's no question. I mean, yeah, and that's one of the the things I think that we we try to instill on a student. It says, look, you know, it's your time. I'm here to help you, but there's work to be done when we're not together. And this is one of the places technology has been great. Is that when they're out working on their game, they still can get to me. Send me a video. Text it to me. If you're struggling, I can watch you. I can help you get beyond that little frustration level you may be having. So from that aspect, the technology of, of the video in your, in your pocket and being able to text it to me and get a response is, here's what I'm trying to do, what am I doing wrong? It almost gives the, the student, you need, to, you need to be out there practicing because I, as the instructor, are expecting to see some of it, you know. And but there, there's no question. You you can't golf is a participation sport. I mean, it, it's really no different. You have to you have to you have to practice it. You have to utilize it in order to get better. And we all know that at certain times, the the more we play days in a row, we just get better simply by repetition. You know, we we begin to get a feel for it a little bit and and stuff. So there, there's no question. If, if the player is not willing to spend some time working on it, they're really not coming to you with any kind of set idea of what they're trying to accomplish. They're, they're, they're really kind of living in a fantasy world that they can come take a lesson every week and get better. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, so they have to participate. They have to be willing to spend some time. It doesn't, you don't have to go out and hit balls, you know, for two hours in the heat. 
I mean, you can do some of the things that we work on in the short game area. You can do it at home, out in your backyard, working on a better angle of attack on your chipping, you know, or, or putting. It's not that you have to spend hours doing this. But because we know we're not going to. We're, there, we have a few players along the way that, 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 that have hopes of being able to play the game for a living or, or whatever, but the vast majority of players just want to be able to maybe play a little better they're going to dedicate a minimal amount of time to practice because they want to play. So if they'll just, you know, commit to making a little bit of effort along the way, that goes, and you know, another catch rate goes a little bit goes a long way. And if they'll just do that, um, uh, even if it's 15 minutes before they tee off, get there early, hit a few chips, hit some putts, hit a few drives, you know, work on a little bit. Uh, and then move on to playing. But there, there has to be a level of commitment to participate beyond playing if they truly want to lower their handicap. Back around to the original question, if they want to lower their handicap, they have to do that. And I think that's imperative on us as instructors to make sure they understand that. You know, if, if you, you're really not into that, then maybe we're just wasting your time and money. So. Yeah, and... and- you know, well said. And, and you know, Tim, the, the truth of the matter is, you know, I, I think sometimes it, it boils down to the level of expectation of the player. If the player really wants to improve, then their level of engagement or participation, as we've suggested, uh, needs to be greater. Uh, you can't go out and, you know, go to the practice tee, uh, you know, maybe once a week or or once every couple of weeks, and maybe you play once or twice a month and don't understand why your handicap isn't going down. Um, you certainly don't have to be as most tour pros do. You don't have to be out there every single day. But as Clint mentioned, there are a number of things you can do right at home. And, you know, it's always interesting. I always equate this to, uh, you know, people and their work ethics. You know, when you go to work, um, you do things to prepare, you do things to organize yourself in such a way to, to perform better in your job. And I think the same applies here in golf. If you want to become a better golfer, there are certain things that you need to do. Um, and those are things that I think a lot of people negate a little bit. What can we do? I'm going to phrase this a little bit differently for you so that you're not uh, you know, feeling like you have to uh, follow in Clint's footsteps necessarily, but participation. What can we do to encourage them uh, and again, being mindful that you know some folks maybe golf can be a little pricey at times. What can we do to get them more engaged in their game and treating it like it's a job? And say, you know what, I want to improve better. Um, certainly, I'm not necessarily going to play on the PGA or LPGA tour necessarily, but uh, I do want to get better. How do I get more engaged? Well, how do we convince them to be more engaged? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really good question, and it's a very important question. And to me, I guess that there's a couple words that come to mind, and, and of course we come back to the mind game a little bit here, but and that is mood and attitude. And to me, unless those are in place, um, before we even start the day, um, we're often setting up the game in a way where we're very vulnerable to, uh, to performance and score and results. And that's why my coaching philosophy has always been that we really need to get the, we need to get the player into a good space before they even attempt 
to get onto the course. And um, uh, the other thing that I guess I would I would say is that we know that when they do that and when they're having fun and they're having a positive attitude, that physical performance tends to be pretty good on that given day. It's it's when we allow the results too much to dictate the mindset. So that when you know, I've often jokingly said that any moron can be happy when they're playing good golf, and and I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are some morons that can't be happy, but 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 by and large, (laughs) we've we've set up the game in a way that that if I'm playing well, well then I'm going to be happy. Then I can have a great attitude, and I can be in a good mood. And but that's too performance driven. And so I guess that 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 my you know my. Uh, my thoughts on this would be, no, we've, we've really got to get ourselves into that good space before we get out there. Um, and, yeah, and just warm up in a way. But as we warm up, are we having fun warming up? Are, are, are we letting results early on when we start warming up? We start, you know, maybe on the range or hitting a few pitch shots or putts or whatever, or we already off in the weeds because you know something isn't something isn't going our way, and I think not enough players really realize they're just setting themselves up for um, not a great experience that day. So I, I, I would come back to uh, uh, it is very much falls upon the player. Kind of getting back to your original question, it very much falls upon the player to set the tone for the kind of day and the kind of performance they're going to have. And without doing that, <laughs> you're, you're only going to be as good as your performance. And if we're really going to get you know better at this game, we need to find a way to have more fun. Yeah, it, it really boils down to, I think, a couple of things. Attitude is, is one for sure. I mean, if you go in with the right attitude, um, and I think you have to – um, obviously you, you have to be willing to have fun. You know, as I mentioned a, a little bit ago, you know, I, I interviewed a young lady, actually, uh, Lilia Vu, who just won uh, the Twin Bridges Championship on the Symmetra Tour here just last weekend. And, you know, she talked about practice, the same thing, or not practice, but warming up. You know, she said the other thing, too, that she sees with a lot of amateurs is, you know, during their warm-up in a pro-am, you know, they'll hit a few balls and they'll make a few putts and, you know, maybe there's a problem. Maybe they're not hitting it as solid as they'd like or necessarily the direction they'd like. And rather than taking that game out on the golf course with them, they start manipulating their hands or they start trying to manipulate things uh, out on the golf course and ultimately end up playing worse than what they potentially could have. So I think, you know, your, your attitude and be willing to accept whatever game you may have that particular day. And she said, you know, herself, there's lots of times when, uh, you know, she's gone out there and maybe not hitting it as well as she normally would, um, but she knows enough not to make changes when she gets out in the golf course, um, that she just plays with whatever, you know, is in the bag that day. And, uh, and then after the round, then she may go and tinker a little bit or, or the next practice session, she may work some things out before she gets out on the golf course again. But that's an area, too, that we see quite often um, a lot of amateur players do. And I think ultimately this is the reason that their handicaps are not coming down is that they're number one, not having fun. And they're not really, uh, you know, we've touched on this uh, many times is they're not practicing with a purpose. 
um, you know, they're just sort of willy-nilly going out there and seeing how far they hit it. Clint, I know you talked about this, Tim, as you as well. And we've only got a, a couple of minutes here left, but uh, I'll give each of you about a minute uh, if you want to touch on practice. Is, uh, you know, is this something that, um, you know, can be time well spent or is it a waste of time with, with uh, you know, our high handicap golfers? Are they just not understanding the, the benefits of practice? Well, I think that they think they do, but I think a, a very simple term is, is that they go to practice if, they, if they're taking lessons. Their instructor needs to give them those things they want to work on. Here's the last thing I do in a lesson is, okay, do you understand what we're doing? Tell, parrot it back to me. I want to hear what you heard me say. And point out, here's what you need to work on. That's your purpose when you go practice. And give them clear indication on what their purpose needs to be. They're coming to us as instructors to help them. We can't assume that they know anything. Okay. So we have to guide them and tell, okay, before we see you again, I want you to work on this thing when you go practice. This is your purpose. This is why you go out there to work. Once you've accomplished that, go go putt. Here's the next thing you need to work on. So we as instructors need to take some responsibility in guiding our beginners particularly uh, with the purpose of practice. I think your accomplished players have a little bit better understanding of that than what they're going out there to try to do. But the the beginning player, we need to guide them and, and giving them a true purpose and what they're working on when they go practice. Yep, couldn't agree more. Tim, I think we have to do just as Clint suggested. I think we have to, uh, you know, encourage them to, uh, we have to give them a task, um, you know, at the end of the lesson and say, here's what you need to work on. Here's, you know, the time you need to spend to it before we get together next time. And I think we need to give them a say. It's, it's much like a job. You know, your your boss gives you a task at hand, said, you know, Tim, here's what you need to do. And and here's the time frame that you need to do it in, and let them go to it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I think that what I see uh, as an instructor is that is that they become so ball oriented or so target oriented. Um, for example, we might give them a certain move or a feel uh, to to work on, and. Uh, make that the goal, but rather than that being the goal for the student, a lot of times they immediately turn to where did the ball go uh, or what happened to the shot or what was the outcome and this and that. And and I'd love to break it into many goals, but it's funny in that how easy it is for beginning students to lose that as the site for the goal. So as an instructor, I find that I really have to stay very mindful, very diligent with the student making sure that they clearly understand the goal and that that, you know, is kind of accomplished. Um, if we're going to make some progress before we work again, that they you know, break it down into baby steps. And, and uh, uh, so to me, that's one of the things as instructors we can maybe do a little better job of is making sure, um, Clint used the words, and I love it, parroting back to me. So I, I do have students repeat back to me, okay, what are we working on today? What do we work on what are we going to accomplish before we get together again? And then, and then hold them to that because there's certainly sequential learning in this sport that, that's like uh, until they can accomplish certain things that uh, it's really hard for them to move forward. So I think that, you know, just, just being mindful of their progress and, and including them as part of the team. They, they don't always know what they need to do, and they do rely on us as instructors and, and just keeping everybody on task. And, and really, even as an instructor, it, it helps me as an instructor 
uh, to not get frustrated. I, I don't care. I, I have yet to meet an instructor that doesn't at times get frustrated with a student when they're not improving. And, you know, we can we can sit and watch some things for a while, but at some point we want to kind of say, hey, come on, you know, you, you got a part in this too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, guys, listen, thank you uh, both for doing a great job as always here on the Coach's Corner panel. Um, great conversation tonight. Hopefully, uh, you know, the listeners will get a little bit from that. I think we've given them some good meat on the bones, if you will, uh, to take home and think about. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, guys, if you're tuning in a little bit later and you missed part of the Coach's Corner segment, uh, at the end of the show, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live and scroll down to the on demand section. And tonight's broadcast will be there in its entirety. So you can go back and listen to uh, maybe the segment that you missed, the on-demand section is in that uh, lower area, so check that out. Um, guys, very quickly, if you want to just let the folks know the best way that they can reach out, if they want to uh, learn more about how to improve and lower their handicaps. Uh, Clint, go ahead, and then Tim. Sure. Ted and Tim, been a wonderful show again. I, I appreciate everything you're saying. And uh, me, they can get a hold of me. They can message me at the Third Shot on Facebook, or they can email me uh, at Clint Goff. 001 at yahoo.com. Love to hear from them. Perfect. Tim? For me, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, for me, it's uh, a website is peakperformancemindcoaching.com, uh, and they can get on there certainly to contact me and some uh, hopefully some good stuff in terms of the mind game. And, uh, yeah, I would love to hear from anybody. But enjoy it too, Ted, as always, and, and Clint, always fun to be on the show with you. Great. All right, guys. Thank you, as always. Have a safe and, and uh, a good weekend. Get out there and enjoy uh, not only teaching, but also get out there and maybe play yourself if you can, if you've got the time. But uh, as always, guys, thank you very much for always bringing your best to the show, and we'll see you next, uh, next time on the Coach's Corner panel. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. All right, take care. All right, that was uh, Tim Kramer and Clint Wright joining me on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. And I see my uh, very special guests are, are ready. Uh, we're going to just take a quick uh, commercial breaks and uh, be right back. This edition of Golf Talk Live is brought to you by Golf Pal. The best place to find only the finest in golf training aids and accessories. Get in on some great deals on leading products such as Down Under Board, Rough Soto, Golf Slingshot and more. Visit GolfPal.Golf today. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Golf Pal. We're serious about your game. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. All right, good evening and welcome back. All right, I'm joined by two gentlemen, uh, fellow Canadians in fact, uh, Joel Lutt and Mark Wilson, uh, co-founders of Greenwood Golf. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them, and then I'll bring them on the show. And we're going to talk about a really exciting product that these guys have uh, put together. And 
introduced to the market uh, just last year. Uh, Joel is one of the co-founders, as I mentioned, of Greenwood Golf. Uh, he's the hype man and the fuel behind it all. Uh, he grew up in Ontario and made his way west in 1999, a true entrepreneur and jack-of-all-trades. Uh, Joel isn't afraid to go out on a limb and uh, be different. Uh, he's also a husband to his wife, Laura, and father of seven amazing kids, and he is a man of legacy who wants to leave an impression on the world. Uh, joining him also is Mark Wilson. Uh, he was born in B.C., British Columbia, uh, husband and father as well, and at a young age of 19 became a business owner of Remarkable Floors, achieving an NWFA nominee for Floor of the Year. Uh, Mark, as an entrepreneur, always dreamed of something bigger, which led him to be uh, Greenwood Golf's uh, co-founder and chief of products. So let me bring these guys on. Uh, please welcome my very special guest, Joel Lutt and Mark Wilson. Hey, how are we doing? Good evening, guys. I'm doing very well. Good evening Good and evening. welcome to Golf Talk Live. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. So, um, so let me just go back a little bit. I always like to do this with, with guests that have come on sort of the first time on the show and give them an opportunity to talk just a little bit about themselves uh, before we get into the specifics. Now, both of you guys, uh, as I've just read, um, have sort of come together and, and, uh, and uh, developed Greenwood Golf, uh, but you're not really from a, a typically a traditional golfing background. So, Joel, I'm going to start with you, and then, and then Mark, um, tell us a little bit about your background leading up to the point that you guys came together. Sweet. Yeah, we'd love to. Um, is, is my vo- I have uh, my headphones and my uh, AirPods. Is it echoey or is it good? No, we're good. Okay, good. So my uh, golf background, um, I grew up in a um, pretty low-income home. Um, my parents divorced when I was young, and my dad raised four boys. Uh, so there was no, <laughs> there was no kind of like uh, membership at a young age, and there was no going to golf courses. And um, I, I picked up a seven iron at a yard sale, I think when I was about ten years old, and uh, a bunch of a bunch of range balls, and I literally just started hitting golf balls across the street uh, in an in a soya bean field. And I couldn't tell you the feeling. Uh, I played baseball at a young age, but when, when I first hit a golf ball for the first time, it was just such a pure, unique feeling. And I would just go gather the balls I would hit, and then I would hit them again, and I would hit them again. And I would just I would, I'd remember how far I could hit this week, and then I'd try to hit further the next week. And that's what I did, and then I started collecting golf balls around a local course, and that was around the age of 12. And I would clean the golf balls off, sell them to guys on the course, and made quite a bit of money at the age of like 12 or 13 selling golf balls. This is like in 1992. And uh, that's how I kind of got to know the game. And then when I got my first job, uh, like official job, I remember buying a set of clubs and I started going to the driving range with a couple buddies and we started golfing um, just at whatever cheap courses we could go on. And I ended up playing in high school um, on the high school team and self-taught. I didn't have any coach. I, did, I just There was no YouTube to watch anything. So 
you would just watch anything PGA Tour on TV, and I'd try to emulate that in my swing. Um, and then I went to college, and I ended up playing on the college team. I wasn't, like, scouted or anything. I was a walk-on, and uh, I had a coach in college, and he said, you can hit the ball, but your, but your, your swing is horrible. <laughs> so I had to he completely reworked my swing, and it was like, it was like basically learning how to swing all over again. Um, but then I could hit the ball straighter and further, um, and my biggest struggle throughout playing golf um, was always putting. And my putting was always like I would go out and buy the next best thing, like whether it was a belly putter when they were popular or whether it was the newest Scotty Cameron. Or um, This is when, of course, I had money because when I was younger, I had nothing. Um, right. But I'd buy any kind of putter to help me, but nothing seemed to help my game at all. Um, and that's kind of, uh, do you want to get into, why don't Mark, you kind of take over from here and then we can get into how we started this company and, and the impact it's had on our golf game. Yeah. Mark, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background as well, just to get the audience sort of up to speed. And then, uh, we'll do just that. We'll get into how you guys sort of came together and, and, uh, and how, uh, Greenwood has, has progressed. Mark, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of, I wouldn't say the same upbringing as Joel, but I mean, we we never went without, but there, it was, um, my dad was the sole provider of the family, so my, my mom could stay home with us. Um, and my golf relationship kind of just started going and hitting balls at the driving range with my dad. And so we would typically on like Friday night, maybe, well, definitely after baseball season was over, because he never wanted me to ruin my baseball swing, he would say, all right, we're going to the driving range. So we, I remember we would always go to the same place, and we would get a five iron and a driver. And just with the mechanics of baseball, and I, I could always hit the ball pretty far and pretty straight. And that was kind of my relationship with golf probably about until grade 11, I want to say. And then I remember specifically I was, uh, I actually kind of went out with the golf team. I had a few friends on, on the team, and they said, oh, why don't you just come out, just walk the course with us, or, you know, you could probably hit some balls. And I remember specifically there was this one time, I think we were 160, 180 yards out maybe, and the whole group just said, oh, you know what, the guys are on the green in front of us, that's okay. Mark, you won't you won't hit the green. It's like you're you're free to swing away. And I was like, okay, like this must have been the first or second hole that I was playing and I really didn't have any familiarity with the clubs, the game. I just said, okay, well, I guess give me a five iron. And sure enough, I put this sucker right at the pin and set, sent the warning shot of all warning shots and the group in front of us was the grade 12 from our school. <laughs> and so that was kind of my first memory, memory golfing Um then as soon as I was out of high school, um, I got into the trades right away, and I remember golfing uh, with my boss at the time. And we, I just remember any time we had a half day, uh, we'd kind of keep our clubs in the in the van, and and we'd just call around and be booking tee times if we had an early day. Um, and I just remember the excitement of, you know, where are we going to play today? 
are we going to play today? Um, and, and rushing from work to the golf course. Um, and that's sort of, that was the start of my relationship with golf. And I mean, it's, it's always an adventure out on the course. Um, there's, there's some, some good days, some bad days, some good holes and bad holes, but overall it's, I mean, I think it just comes back and I'm always reminded, uh, you know, the, the, the game of golf teaches you so much about your own character. Um, and the resiliency that you might have mentally or don't have. And uh, I think that's the challenge that everyone loves about this game. Yeah. You know, it's sure. interesting. Uh, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad, Mark, that the, uh, the grade 12s didn't decide to uh, run back and, and work you over after, right. after hitting it <laughs> on the green. Because, uh, we may, you may not be having that, this conversation on the show tonight had they done that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very interesting. And, and the reason why, the reason why I wanted you to do this guys, cause I, I knew from, you know, uh, we've had a, a conversation or so before, uh, when you first introduced, uh, your product to, to me, uh, a little while ago, um, that you, you both really were not well entrenched in golf. Like we typically hear. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I want, I like to share that because it, I think it's important because sometimes it adds a different perspective. Sometimes when you're coming sort of from an outside area, not typically. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, some of the, the the best thoughts, best ideas can come out because you're you're looking at it from a different perspective. Um, so, Joel, I'm going to come back to you if you want to sort of lead us into how you guys got together and and sort of how Greenwood uh, came about and and what was sure. developed as a result. Of that. For sure. So, about five years ago, now Mark and I um, we didn't know each other at all, and we ended up. Uh, both signing up for this men's men's retreat. And it was like a retreat to help you to become, you know, a better husband, better father, one of those kind of events. And it was held mm-hmm. at a place in British Columbia called uh, Rockridge. And Rockridge, um, there's a golf course um, right close to Rockridge. So the people running the event said, hey, why don't we do a mini golf tournament um, if anybody wants to sign up before, we'll have some prizes before the retreat. And I said, oh, sign me up for sure. So I was driving with this guy um, who golfed once in his life, and he brought his clubs. Uh, he worked with me at the time. And we ended up showing up super late. Like, we were about an hour late for this golf tournament. And I'm like, oh, man, this is horrible. Like, we're, we missed our tee time. We're not going to get to play. And Mark's team, Mark was on a team, uh, four guys, and it was a Texas scramble. And they were the last group to go out. And they, I, we said, hey, like, you know, there's only two of us, and what does the tournament look like? And they said, oh, it's just kind of a fun thing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, do you guys want to join us? And so, like, so six guys playing in, in a Texas scramble four 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 person Texas scramble. So I was like, sure, let's do it, let's have fun. So who cares, right? So we Mark and I met each other, introduced each other, and then we found out pretty quickly that we were the two best golfers uh, out of the six. And we kinda held the whole team through the through the tournament that day. Um and we made a friendship uh during that tournament and we ended up winning. Um and then we we won the tournament. We felt bad about it, so we told the people running it that we had six people 
on our team and they gave us the prize for winning it, which was like a trophy and a gift certificate or something. And so they made everybody on the team in front of about 250 guys, they made everybody on our team chug a one liter jug of of milk in front of everybody in this super hot room where they were doing all the like the, the talks and everything like that. So we had to chug one of the guys Ralph in the garbage bin. Like it was insane. But that was the start of Mark and I's uh, friendship, and we got to know each other over that weekend, and then we ended up staying in touch, and uh, yeah, just became really good bros and supportive of each other and our families, and and just speaking encouragement into each other's lives. And it wasn't until about three years after that retreat, so two years ago now. Mark was helping me move into a house in Langley, British Columbia. And we had golfed a bunch uh, together since the retreat. And um, nothing was, you know, we're, like, I'm an 8 handicap. Mark's, like, a 10 to 12 handicap, depending on the day. So there's nothing phenomenal happening, but it's still decent golf. And we're moving into this carport at our new house. And in the back of the carport, uh, the old owner left a bag of, like, vintage golf clubs. And he was still hanging around because we were, we were moving in early, moving our stuff into the carport. And I said, hey, what do you want to do with uh, these old clubs here? And he said, oh, I'm just donating them to Goodwill. And I said, okay, no problem. So I grabbed the bag, and Mark was with me. And we just, like, scanned the clubs. And it's like... It was almost identical to the seven iron that I first played with when I was 10 years old. It's like the classic Jack Nicholas, like bladed irons, like just like super not easy to hit, no forgiveness. Uh, the vinyl bag from like the 1960s, like, and then all of a sudden, and the wood, you know, the wood driver, the wood, three wood and five wood. And, and then in the bag, Mark and I noticed a club that had this gold sparkly vinyl head cover on it and there was a zipper on it and I was like well what the heck is that that must be the putter so we go to open up the putter but it was a rusty zipper so we ended up having to just rip the vinyl along the zipper and I still remember the moment we both looked at it and we looked down and we it was a wooden head putter and I'd never seen a wooden head putter before. And on the face of the putter, uh, behind the epoxy, it said gun alliance. So we both looked at each other and we're like, what the heck is this? And uh, we're like, man, I, I don't even, maybe this was a gift or something. Like, But it's in the bag. So the person who used to play used to probably play with this. So Mark's like, hey, I'm playing in a flooring tournament tomorrow. Do you mind if I take it? Because remember, we're both we're bad putters, both of us. So there's nothing right. that could affect our putting game. Nothing could nothing could make it worse. So Mark's like, "Do you mind if I take it?" I'm like, "Go for it, dude! Like, who cares?" So, <laughs> sure enough, uh, he takes it. That night, I couldn't stop thinking about the wooden putter. So I'm like googling, you know, if wooden putters exist. And sure enough, like Louisville make some wooden mm -hmm. golf putters and there's there's a company called Bradley Putters in the US and they make these big ornate like 
you know, what's your favorite football team? Let's say it's the 49ers. You can make a 49ers type putter out of epoxy and all these, you know, different things. So I, I did see that there was already wooden putters on the marketplace. And I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we didn't find something that was necessarily a golden egg. So that's what I was thinking when I went to bed. Mark calls me the next day um, before his round, and he said, dude, this putter feels incredible. And six people have come up to me on the practice green and asked if they could try it. And I was like, what? So immediately my brain goes into, like, maybe we got something here. And Mark's like, yeah, man, there's something about it. The feel's incredible. And I said, okay, well, let me know how your round goes. So sure enough, he calls me after his round, and he's like, yeah, man, it's, it, the putter's incredible. Like, it's just, it's just something different about it. So immediately I start looking at uh, online at the USGA rules for golf because I'm like, there's no way that a wooden putter can be USGA compliant. Like if if Mark's saying if Mark's saying this thing feels better, how come I don't know more wooden putters on the market? I've never seen one. So Mark, so the next day Mark and I go to this local course here in Langley called Redwoods, and uh, he's like, "You got to try it." So we're just practicing with it on the practice green. I'm like, "Yeah, dude, there's something here. This is crazy." So at, at that moment. We just shook hands and we were like, okay, whatever happens, like, let's just start making prototypes. And I'm like, can you try and copy what we found? And Mark's like, yeah, I think so. Like, Mark's like, I deal with wood every day so I can try and mimic what we found and we'll just go from there. And I said, okay, let's do this. And we sort of formed like a fake, you know, 50-50 partnership at that moment. And for the next six months, Mark was making various prototypes and he would make one and show me and I'd be like, yeah, that kind of, you know, that looks pretty bad, Mark. Like, let's keep moving like, on to the next one. So I think it was around like prototype number, you know, 25 or 28, somewhere in that realm. Like he, he was making a lot of different putterheads. Um, and he's making them after work. He's making them during work and, um, his wife wasn't too pumped about this in the beginning as well. Um, it wasn't until we had a prototype, um, and Mark could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was prototype 28. But we had that prototype, and I said, okay, man, this is ready. I used to work in the snowboard skateboard industry, um, and I actually purchased uh, Fury skateboard trucks off of, like, Tony Hawk and Pear Willander. And so I, I was I was used to like dealing with prototypes and like making something and bringing something new to the market and what it needs to do and what it needs to be like. So Mark had made this finally prototype number 28, and I said, okay, we need to see if this can get USGA approved, um, and we also need to talk to some PGA guys to see if they would even play with this thing or what they think about it because maybe we just have this like you know, I don't, what is the word where it's like, because you made it, you know, it's such a biased, maybe we're just biased mm -hmm. towards this putter thinking it's better than it is because it's something we created. So we needed more opinions. So we ended up flying to California with the putter and, sh and meeting up with a guy who's a PGA instructor um, 
His name's Sam Goulden, and he owns a company called Minimal Golf. And Sam, um, he he was like, yeah, I guys, to be honest with you, um, like this is on the phone before we flew down there. He said, to be honest with you guys, um, every year a putting company tries to get me to try their putter. And for 15 years, I haven't switched putters because I got fitted with David Adele. And, you know, my putter is what works for me and it's the best putter. And I'm like, okay, I understand. And so then we told him the story about how we found this putter and how we started creating prototypes. And Sam, and I said to Sam, I've golfed pretty much my whole life since I was a kid. And the putter we've created, I feel like takes the tool out of your hands. And it, it makes you almost, it, it, it takes away the metal component. So you're not hitting the ball with something metal. It's like you're hitting with something so natural that your body knows how hard you should swing and you get such a clean, clear response when you when you stroke the ball. And Sam, I guess I said some key words that really like hit him. And he said, he said, Joel and Mark, um, you know what? Just off your guys' story, I'm willing to give this thing a shot. And so we flew down there. Um, he didn't want us to fly down at first. He's like, just mail it out. But this is our only prototype, right? So we didn't want to, like, let's put it in the mail and see what happens. So we flew down there with it, and uh, he was he was teaching a lesson, or he's on a conference call or something, and we showed up as a studio. And I remember he grabs it out of the bag that we brought because we brought our clubs along. And he starts, like, he's, like, hitting it on his practice screen, and he, he, but he's also on a conference call. And he goes, he's like, hmm, 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 oh, hmm. And we can't tell if he's talking about our butter or if he's <laughs> chatting on his conference call. So, and, and, and Mark and I are looking at each other like, okay, what the heck? What does he think of the putter? And anyways, Sam, like, pauses his conference call, and he's like, hey, guys, um, you know, I just got to finish up this call. Why don't, if you guys just go grab a bite to eat and come back in an hour, that would be great. And we're like, oh, okay. So we just walk down. This is Manhattan Beach, literally two blocks from the ocean. And we're just walking along Manhattan Beach looking for a place to eat. And we're both kind of looking at each other like, what, did, what do you think he thought? And we're like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, this is, it's like going on a first, a blind date. And you don't know what the person thinks of you, except we're like showing a putter that we've created and we get back to his studio in an hour and I remember walking in and thinking like okay is he going to say something immediately and he didn't really talk about the putter he started talking about hey how was your flight all this stuff and then sure sure enough out of nowhere he goes well let's head to the course try this thing out we're like okay so we we end up going to this local course um, it was called Wind Drift, I, I believe. Mark, is that correct? Yeah, I, I believe so. I think it was Wind Drift or West Drift or something like that. It was in the back of a Marriott hotel, and it's a really nice executive course, uh, really kept kept up really well. Um, we get there, and Sam introduced us to the guys in the pro shop and they're, they're like, Hey Sam, Hey. And Sam's like, Hey, I'm here with a bunch of Canadians. And we're like, Hey guys. And they're, they kind of made some Canadian jokes as, as usual. And, uh, 
we get to the first tee box. There's no, like, warming up. There wasn't any range or anything to practice. We get to the first tee box. It's my first time playing with, we were going to play with Sam, PGA instructor. So I've never played with somebody of that caliber. So I'm super nervous. And we get up to the tee box, and Sam's like, all right, who's first? And he spins the tee, and I'm first. And it's, it's a par three course, so the first hole is 116 yards to the pin. And there's a full-blown restaurant, outdoor eating patio restaurant at the Marriott, right at the first tee box. So there's like 30 people eating lunch. And uh, Sam's, Sam's next. Like, he spins the tee, it goes to him, and goes to Mark. So I'm up there. I hit, I think, my A wedge, and I'm 10 feet above the hole. And I'm pretty happy. So inside, I'm like, holy crap, I'm on the green. Okay, I don't need to stress. There was a pond on the right that I was terrified of. And Sam goes, nice shot. And I'm thinking in my head, yes, like this PGA instructor guy just told me nice shot. Like, that's awesome. And he gets up and hits it, and he's 15 feet um, underneath the hole. So he's further away, but it's a better putt to the hole to be under, right? So... I'm like, nice shot. He's like, thank you. Mark gets up there, and I'm just think, I'm literally thinking in my head, Mark, please just get it on the green or close to the green. Don't hit it in the pond. Don't do anything. Don't shank it. So I'm super nervous for Mark. And Mark gets up there, and he grabs his 56 degree, and he hits it, and Sam goes, that's going in the hole. And, and I'm like, holy crap, that's right on the pin. And Sam's like, that's going in the hole. And I'm like, what? And it hits six feet above the pin. So I'm like, holy crap, that was good. All of a sudden, boom, backspin goes in the cup, hole in one. I start freaking out. Mark is like white in the face like a ghost. I'm freaking out, screaming. And Sam's like, I knew that was going in. People start standing up as they're eating their lunch, clapping and cheering. And Mark is like in awe. And I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. Like it's the first time I've ever been a part of a hole-in-one, like in real life, not on TV. And it's Mark's first hole-in-one. And this is the first hole that we're presenting our putter to this guy. So it's pretty insane. I remember grabbing Mark and I like carried him basically halfway to the hole. And then we started filming as we're walking up to the green and we have that film today still and, and Mark pulling the, the ball from the, from the hole. And it was pretty incredible. It was just a surreal, it was one of those moments, Ted, where you knew something happened for a reason. Like it wasn't just like this weird fluke, like, Oh, that's a cool experience. Like it was like, okay, we're meant to be here. We're meant to be meeting with this guy and something special is going to happen out of this experience. So sure enough, um, he grabs the putter. Um, I think the second hole, he grabbed the putter and he started uh, putting with it on the greens. And he was like, what the heck? He, I remember him saying, this thing feels incredible. And we're both looking at each other like, is he being serious? And he's like, guys, this thing feels, this is exactly what you said it is. He's like, this feels incredible. And he goes, and 
and the zero degree loss that you guys have on here. Like, why did you guys do that? He's, he's like, but it works with it. He's like, it works with this wood. And he's like, you get such a pure roll. And he's just blown away. And he's draining all these putts. And we're like, uh, what do you mean zero degree loft? And he goes, well, putters have two to, two to four degrees loft. And we're like, we look at each other like, uh, we didn't know that. And he goes, and he starts laughing. He's like, holy cow. He's like, that's fine that you didn't know that because I think you guys developed something that's incredible. And he's like, you need to stick with this. And we were like, holy cow. Okay, so that's even, that's even, that's another like mark on the board of we didn't know what we were doing, but we just kept trying to create something better and better and better. And so sure enough, Sam, we ended up going for dinner that night. And we said to Sam, no, we want you to be a part of the team if you're if you're as pumped as we think you are about this. And he said, no, you guys have something here that is super special. And he goes, I, I know golf. I've done golf my whole life. And he goes, I think one of the big four companies is going to see three years from now, you guys are going to get bought out because you guys are – this what you guys have created and what you're going to create is going to blow people away. And so we're sitting there at that table like, what the heck? And – we ended up bringing him on as a 1%, you know, shareholder in our company, the kind of fake company that we had at that point. And we asked him for his help, like developing new prototypes that he thought we could take to market. He, and he was pumped about that. Um, so he, uh, for the next six months, he started developing uh, the first prototype we have, which is just called the classic putter now. And, uh, he wanted to base it off of stuff he learned with David Adele, and he talked to David Adele about this. And uh, just having no sight line on the putter at all, uh, that was the first big thing that he also loved. Like, we had no line. We had no dot in the beginning. We do now. We have line. But we had no dot in the beginning, nothing. And he said, putting is all about feel. Um, so putting is all about feel. It's all about lining up properly. Uh, and it's all about feedback. And so that's what we wanted to produce in the beginning with Sam, and we produced a model. We sent it away to um, the guys at the USGA and got to know them well. And they actually, it was our third prototype that we sent to them, was finally USGA approved, and they were like, yeah, this can be used in a PGA event. Uh, so that was a huge milestone for us. That just happened about 10 months ago. Um, so we started sending that first prototype that was USGA approved to um, friends and family because we wanted to get mm-hmm. people, people we knew that golfed, we wanted to get their feedback um, and their honest opinion. We said, this is something we've created. Um, if you want to pay us 150 bucks a putter just for our time and kind of what we put into these things, um, you know, if we sell them on the market, we're going to sell them for more, but here's an opportunity to get something we created. So sure enough, we sent about, in the next month or two, we sent about 30 putters out there all across, uh, you know, mainly Canada, but some into the U.S. and Seattle and stuff. And the feedback that we got back was basically like, this thing's phenomenal. How did you guys make this? Uh, I'm putting way better than I used to. My missed putts are a lot closer to the hole. So just a lot of, we didn't necessarily want positive, all positive feedback. We wanted like, how can we make this better? But people were like, no, no, we love it. We love it. Like, this is great. 
So then Global News, which is like an NBC News or ABC News in the States, um, my brother-in-law lives in Edmonton, and he was playing with the old announcer for the Edmonton Oilers. And this guy's retired, and he had the putter. And my brother-in-law had the putter. And he, the guy playing with him said, hey, can I give that thing a try? It looks cool. And he loved the putter. And he said, hey, my daughter works for Global News Edmonton uh, for sports. And she's the head of director of the sports um, thing. Can I tell her about this and give you, give you, uh, you know, a recommendation? And, and my brother-in-law was like, yeah, I think that's fine. I'll, I'll let my brother-in-law know and see what happens. Sure enough, a week later, Global News is in my garage where Mark and I are making these things. And they're doing a news segment on us. And they're putting this big news piece together to air um, on the Saturday. And this is a Wednesday. So this is about a year ago today. And we, we did not have a website. We did not have a legitimate business yet. Um, we didn't have anything at this time. We were just like, okay, like, let's see what happens with this news piece. So after they took all the news, like all the footage and stuff on the Wednesday, they said, okay, send us your website and stuff when you guys get one. And we're like, well, let's get one before this thing airs on Saturday. So sure enough, we're on the phone with Sam knew a guy in India um, that he hooked us up with. So we're on the phone with this guy named Nitesh till like two in the morning for the next few nights. And we're get, sending him photos and information, and he's putting together a website with a Shopify account. And we're like, all right, well, I guess we're ready. So Mark and I's goal was we hope to sell 10 putters in, out of this news piece. And we wanted to sell 200 putters in all of 2020. 2020. And we were pumped. And the news piece hit. And it was like the movies. And the news piece did like a story on how we found it. And they showed people putting with it and draining putts. And like they had a couple PGA people talking about it. And it was pretty cool. And we did not know what to expect. And it was like the movies. If you ever watch like the dot-com things and like where their phones ding when they get a sale, that's what mm-hmm. happened to Mark and I. We were in separate homes. But our phones, we got notifications whenever we'd get a sale on a Shopify account. And after that news piece hit, it was like 6 o'clock BC time because it was a news station in Alberta. And our phones started going off like ding, ding. But it's like a cha-ching with Shopify. So it's like money going in a cash register. It's like cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And it just went nuts. And it was insane. And Mark and I are almost crying on the phone. And we're like, okay, now we got to build these putters, dude. Like, we've, we had, like, wooden heads ready that we got made at a right. CNC factory. But we had to get, like, shafts and grips and everything, like, the brass, because we cut all our own brass and do all the custom engraving ourselves. Like, everything's in-house. So we had over 200 putters ordered in the first two weeks since that news piece aired. And we were like, holy crap, man, we've got a company. <laughs> so I ended up uh, resigning. I, I had a pretty high-level job um, as a business development manager for really high-end security stuff, um, 
working with law enforcement and government and stuff. And I ended up resigning my job because somebody had to do that. Like we looked at each other and we're like, okay, like I also was traveling two weeks of every month and I, I wanted to leave my job anyways, cause it was really affecting my, my wife and my kids and all of that stuff. So this came at the perfect time for me to resign my position, take on Greenwood golf full time. And Mark, Mark just kept, keeps helping. He's still running his hardwood flooring business. Uh, but now we have a new office and a warehouse and we have a new model as well uh, called the Tour Series. It's a facet style putter. Uh, it looks more of like a hybrid type of club, but it's a putter. Um, and yeah, we've learned a lot in the last year and we just signed a big deal with golf.com and they, their lead instructor, his name is Luke I forget his last name, but it's Luke something. He only played with a Scotty Cameron putter his whole life, and he has switched to our putter solely, taken his Scotty out of his bag, and now he's preaching our putter to everybody he runs into. And this is the, one of the head instructors for golf.com. Uh, he's a top 100 instructor in the USA. Um, so he believes in our putter, so they took our putter on and they're about to do some big PR on who we are and what the putter is. And that's going to launch in the next week or so. So that I just had a conversation with them again today. Um, and they're, they're super pumped. They said, they said just based on our story alone, they could sell thousands of putters. But if our putter performs as well as we say it does, they're like, the sky's the limit, guys. Because that's another thing, like we can touch on that a little later, Ted, but the, the performance piece of our putter, it also blew Mark and I away with what happened. But that's kind of where we've come from quickly, and I guess not so quickly, but <laughs> there's the story. All right, so I'm going to bring, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to cut you off so I can bring Mark in here um, because I want to give yeah. him a chance to speak a little bit as well. So, Mark, let me ask you something. So, let's talk about uh, if we can. Um, about what the putter head is actually made of. Obviously, we know it's wood, but it's a specific wood. Yep. Why did you choose that? Um, and and also, um, well, talk about that for Sorry, a second, if you wouldn't mind. How did you sort of come across the choice and, and why you chose the type of wood um, for this putter? That, that we did. Right. Um, well, to start off with, um, what we did is I I was making these, wood heads i was actually buying four by four posts believe it or not like solid red oak posts and i would cut them up um and i would no word of a lie shape them with a sander in my garage that was why like joel said i my wife really did not like me doing this in the garage because i mean we don't have a massive garage everybody who has a garage knows what a garage turns into i got a young family so there's strollers and old baby clothes so i mean you can imagine the the corals that happened there um so we started with red oak um and kind of that was like our test species that we actually brought to uh, manhattan beach with us when we saw sam um I don't know that we necessarily were sold on any one species in particular. It was more so figuring out the shape um, and getting the prototype kind of nailed in. So I started with red oak and I used eastern maple um, next. 
um, which was giving us a nice feel. Both of them are pretty hard, um, but they're also relatively cheap. So, I mean, when I'm going through a bunch of prototypes, I mean, yes, there's quote-unquote 26, 28 prototypes, but, I mean, one out of every two of those gets tossed in the garbage because they just don't either look good or in the process they something breaks or... So then once we had kind of finalized what what we liked for the shape, that was when I, I kind of said, you know what, I really think that we should go with walnut. And, mm-hmm. I mean, anybody who knows wood, walnut is the wood. Everybody loves walnut. It's beautiful. It's luxurious. Um, and that was kind of the thought behind that. Um, also, with walnut being slightly softer than red oak and um, eastern maple, I found that it had a kind of like a deeper thud when you hit the ball. It wasn't as high-pitched, so it, it really, that deep frequency really trans, like translated up into your hands when you're striking the ball. And so I think that was probably the main thing overall that we really liked was the feel of it. And I mean, also the beauty of it is kind of icing on the cake. So let me ask you, then. let me just follow up then on that, because, you know, obviously what you're looking for, because you are dealing with, with wood in the, in the, in the head, um, obviously while you're doing these prototypes, you had to, you know, test them as you went along to make sure the response and the feel was going to be, because obviously like you pointed out, every, type of wood is going to have a different response and feel to it. So you were kind of looking for one that was going to give you the maximum. But there are other concerns, though, with wood, you know, obviously splitting or cracking and things like that. Was that a concern mm-hmm. as well as time goes on with climate conditions? Because you're up in Canada, so obviously it's, I mean, not that you're playing right. in the winter, but <laughs> sitting out in your garage, it's a little colder. And, you know, if you're down here in, in uh, you know, South Florida, it's a little hotter. So, um, was there right. any special coating that went on to it at some point that you said we need to coat this with right. something to prevent that or to do that with, with various climates? And, and what was that? Oh, no, that's a really good question. Um, so obviously I come from a flooring background and dealing with wood on the daily. So, I mean, wood is no stranger to me. Um, wood is living and always expanding and contracting, usually at a rate that no one can notice. Um, so, I mean, that definitely was a concern was, was durability. How is this thing going to hold up? Right. Um, so what we did right from the get go, um, is we actually seal these, um, like they're 100% sealed with a two component catalyzed hybrid finish, um, that does have the main concern that I have is, is moisture, um, Wood isn't, not a lot's going to happen with hot and cold. I mean, it can, but I mean, I don't know that anyone's going to be leaving their golf bag outside their house in the freezing, you know, no one really does that. Um, But even with that, wood is super resilient. The main concern that we had was kind of what you said earlier. Are these going to crack? Are they going to break? What's going to happen to them? Um, to date, I mean, I'm usually got one of the first putters that I first kind of, if you want to call it one of the first ones off the production line in my bag. Um, I'll go back and forth. I mean, 
as most golfers do, this, you know, looking for a different something aesthetically to look at differently. But I usually go back to the same one. And other than a couple of nicks here and there, which, I mean, I I, I could care less. I mean, I, I think you could expect that out of a wood putter just going in and out of the bag and just getting nicked or whatever. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, there isn't a lot of wear on it. Um, and what I did specifically to work on that strength is our hosel is, I want to say, half an inch above the head of the club. And then we actually, through our weighting, we actually drill a hole through the weight that's on the inside of the putter. And we, we stick that shaft all the way down to the bottom side of the brass base plate. And the reason that I wanted to do that, number one, was for strength, because I knew if I, if I was just relying on the wood, that it wasn't going to be very strong. I knew mm-hmm. that if I drilled down into the weight and we epoxied that shaft right to the weight, not only was it going to make it stronger and last longer, but we also realized and knew that that frequency was going to transfer through the shaft to give us that really good feedback as well. So with that, with that problem that we kind of solved, I think we really, we really, it was really a twofer actually. We got the the strength and we got that feedback. And remember it is, it is a one solid piece of wood. It's not, we're not like, laminating two pieces together is a solid block. Every single one is different. Every single one is its own block. Right. Right. And that's important because obviously then you, you know, you're, you're going to have less wear and tear on it as well. You're not going to have it run the risk that, you know, it's going to split because it's two pieces or three pieces or what have you. So that, that is definitely important. Mark, I want to ask you uh, as well. And, and I know we're actually limited, believe it or not on time, but um, you guys, <laughs> sent out to be, be tested, obviously, with, a, with uh, some live folks. Uh, and you also had it tested against a number of the top brands. Uh, how did it perform overall? Just give us sort of an overall view. I mean, you know, we can't go through every one, but it, it was tested up against some of the top brands on the market. And how did it fare? So it was, well, I mean, kind of like Joel said, I mean, this whole journey has been one where I'm, I'm typically extremely positive, glass always, always full. Um, but with this specifically, I've always looked at it with a, a lot more critical eye than I typically do, just because I don't want this to be something that because I created, it's the best. So when we right. got the opportunity to test it on the Kintech, Joel and I kind of went in there thinking, well, you know what, it's, it's a putter. It's gonna. It's it's not gonna be worse than any of these. Is kind of the the thought process we had, and I mean we were so so relaxed while we were in there that the guy who was testing, um, I believe we tested against the uh, he had an even roll putter that we tested it against. There was a Scotty Cameron. There was an Odyssey two ball, and I believe there was also a um, a TaylorMade Spider, and he said, um, guys. I really think you guys should come over and take a look at this data. And I mean, Joel and I are just talking to one of the guys in this, in this, in in the shop there again, kind of not really thinking too much of it. And what we realized or what he told us was 
um, a couple of the main points were that the ball is staying on our putter face twice as long, um, which I get again goes to what Joel said earlier about um, the wood giving you a better feel because it's it's actually absorbing the ball a little bit more than a metal putter would. Um, our putter is keeping the ball on line far better because there's no loft. And we're also getting, um, sorry, my mind is not like there. Um, we're also mm-hmm. getting a shorter skid um, from impact. Again, um, because there's no loft, we're getting um, true roll far uh, far closer to impact than any of the other putters were. So I think the Scotties and the they're around the 16 to 18 inch before they start their true roll, and we're getting true roll at about 12 or 13 inches off the face. Wow. So yeah, and can I just add one thing to to this too? Sure. Um, it's it's really important that. The, another big point that he had made to us is he took all those top, he took all those other five putters that were tested against, and he said, on average, on a 15-foot putt, all of those putters were off 0.44 millimeters off that original line. So from the original spot of impact to the hole, it was they were off 0.44 millimeters. On average, our putter was 0.22 millimeters off that original line. So that blew, when he told us that data, that blew my mind because I was like, holy cow. When you're talking about golf being a game of millimeters and centimeters and, you know, people say inches, but it's like that makes such a massive difference. And even if you have that confidence putting to know like, man, this putter is better. I'm going to putt better with this putter. You are going to putt better with this putter. It's pretty incredible that we've fluked out and created something that is actually better than the brand new 2021 Scotty Cameron, you know, 2.5 Newport Beach, like whatever it is, right? Like it's just pretty Mm -hmm. incredible. Well, sometimes too, I think, um, and I'm going to tell you very briefly just to, to share with the audience something that I did because um, you guys obviously sent me a, a, a sample of, of one of your, your putters to uh, to sort of test out. And, you know, I took it out myself, and, and I'm going to, you know, just add my two cents here. You know, obviously it's a little biased, but um, but I want to tell you about my experience because I think it's it's good for the audience to, to understand that. You know, when I putted, what I found, what was re- uniquely different is it, it definitely had a much different feel than anything that I had tried before. And when I first tried it, I, you know, it was a little bit um, odd for me because I wasn't used to putting with a, a wooden putter, of course. And it, it obviously had a different look than what I was typically used to. But what I found um, with my own, and I'm going to mention somebody else here in just a minute, um, was that it was very, very consistent. The feel of it was very, very consistent. What I And I mentioned this to you guys in a phone call a while back. What I found with a lot of the uh, putters on the market today is the ball tends to bounce off quite a bit uh, and there's not a, a sort of a solid feel it just sort of bumps off and, and almost sort of scoots off a little bit um, and so it was very difficult to get any consistency one of the things I found with yours is every putt was the same 
didn't matter what length I went, the feel was the same. So if I was putting 10 feet, uh, 10 foot putt or 20 foot putt, um, you know, whatever distance I took it back and went through, the feel was exactly the same with every putt. And I thought, well, okay, that's just me. Let me try somebody else. So while I was up at the range, I, you know, happened to see a young guy probably in his 30s that was uh, out there with his putter. And I just sort of pulled him aside and said, hey, look, I'm testing out this putter. I want to see what you get your thoughts. Didn't tell him really anything about it initially. And I just said, hey, I want you to hit a few putts with yours. And then I want you to hit a few putts with this. And we went back and forth probably for about 20 minutes. And then, you know, he had to leave. And what I noticed with his putter and I really want to point this out to to the audience tonight, was that, and he was pretty consistent with his putts as far as, you know, how he, how he uh, approached it. With his putter, one putt would go past the hole, the other one would be short, another one would be maybe close to the hole, and then, you know, back and forth. It was very inconsistent in the distance control. What we found with your putter was that, uh, now again, because he hadn't really played with it long, he wasn't really used to it, um, the putts were coming up a little bit short, but they were consistently short. In fact, they were the same distance, uh, almost in a clump, if you will, uh, below the hole, um, which was very, very interesting. And he had the same putting stroke as he did with his, but it was very uh, consistent with yours. Now, obviously, you know, if he used a little bit longer and got, uh, you know, adapted to the field a little better, uh, you know, he'd probably even have even better results than what he did. But he was very, very impressed with it because he said that, as I pointed out, with his putter, uh, they were either going past, short, like, you know, out of three or four balls, there was never any consistency with the putts. When he used your putter, they were all pretty much the same distance. Um, so it was just a matter of him fine-tuning uh, his stroke to get the distance that he needed. And that says a lot about the type of... of putter that you've put together because that's really what golfers are looking for is the consistency um and a lot of the stuff on the market you guys know this you've played um they're not consistent um they spend a lot of money in research and development that but the truth of the matter is they're really not consistent um you guys have definitely hit the nail on the head as they were and um i think it is going to be a, a very uh good putter and what i you know somebody at first glance might think well this is just kind of a novelty and yeah, it looks cool and all that, but um, the truth is the proof is in the pudding. And I think with what you're doing now and, and getting it out there, I think people are going to be very, very impressed because I can, uh, again, say honestly from my own perspective and from uh, this other gentleman's perspective that we were both equally impressed in the performance. So you guys, kudos to you. You've done a good job. Thank you. Thank and, you very uh, much. New news for you too, Ted. Uh, and I didn't mention this in the beginning, but if you know who Rick Shields is in England, yep. uh, we mm -hmm. were just on the phone with him a couple weeks ago, and he has agreed to uh, try our putter. So we're going to send him a putter, which is pretty incredible. Yep. Uh, so we'll see his his feedback as well. But we appreciate yeah, your feedback. And yeah, not a problem. And, and I know Rick will do a great job, and that's certainly going to introduce it. So um, we're we're – Unfortunately, guys, we've got to wrap up. It's hard to believe the hour went by as quick as it did, but I want to give you guys a, a chance um, uh, to just sort of wrap this up. So if, if folks, where can they currently get the putter? Where is it available right now? Um, can it? Obviously, I know you guys can send it. It, it can be shipped if somebody wants to order it um, from outside North America. Can they do so? What's the best way to get more information on it, um, and where can they get their hot little hands on one? 
Yeah, so Either one of you. I can speak to this quickly. So we've shipped them uh, to Australia, Europe, um, all over the world. That's not an issue. We can ship them anywhere. Um, we, they can buy them from our direct from our website, which is greenwoodputters.com. And um, we will answer any questions. If people send us an uh, email or phone us, we will answer any questions. We'll give them time to chat about it. We can custom custom make the putter any length that people want, weight, and anything. Um, the weight that we're we're using right now is 345 gram head weight. Um, that's the weight that it's just about three months old that we've kind of landed on. That's the weight we need to be, um, and that's it's going really well with people. Um, but we're we're constantly adapting and changing, and we're super excited. We'll be with Golf.com, so you. In a couple of weeks, people can buy direct from golf.com. Um, and then also, we did want to give, Ted, uh, your listeners a promo code. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody that buys um, off of here today is going to get $50 off of a putter. So it's it, they just have to punch in at our website, Golf Talk Live, and then 50 Golf Talk Live 50, and they'll get $50 off any purchase. And our putters aren't expensive. Uh, their top model is 379 Canadian, which works out to be mm-hmm. about $310 American or something like that. Right. So it's not that expensive for a custom, handmade, uh, performance, beautiful putter. Yeah, they're definitely great, and uh, I definitely recommend... Uh, folks uh getting out there and and uh and doing uh doing their best to uh purchase this because i think it make a great gift for that golfer in your family if you're not a golfer yourself but maybe your spouse or partner is uh or maybe somebody in your family uh definitely i would highly recommend uh you guys uh uh going there and taking advantage of the special offer so it's golf talk live 50 and you get 50 dollars off uh your purchase uh at uh, greenwoodputters.com Guys, thank you very much for uh, joining me this evening here on Golf Talk Live. I regret, uh, unfortunately, we gotta we gotta cut it off, but I uh, appreciate you guys coming on. All good. And uh, yeah, much continued success. And and I'm gonna uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But uh, we're coming up to our final issue of Golf Tips Magazine this season, and we're gonna have uh, your putter as one of the uh, hot items to buy uh, in this year's awesome. uh, holiday gift guide, which will be coming out before. Uh, December, so uh, it's going to be in our holiday gift guide this year. So again, another opportunity to uh, to purchase this. But uh, uh, Joel and, and Mark, thank you very much for uh, for coming on tonight, and uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, thank you, Ted. Keep up the great work. All right. Thank thank you thank guys. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks, okay. guys. Bye-bye. All right. Bye bye. All right. That was uh, Joel Lutt and Mark Wilson, co-founders of Greenwood Golf. Uh, definitely some. Uh, interesting backstory there and uh, lots of exciting things happening. And it just goes to show you that, you know, don't throw away uh, anything that you might find in your garage. It could turn into a uh, a business down the road. And these guys have obviously taken advantage of that. And uh, I think they've hit them uh, a winner, if you will, uh, just uh, finding a, a dusty old club in the garage. So, uh, but anyways, I want to also thank uh, again, uh, Tim Kramer and Clint Wright. Uh, guys, thanks again for doing a great job on the Coach's Corner panel. I see that we're out of time, so I've got to split. I will see you next week right here on Golf Talk Live with another Coach's Corner and another great guest. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.